Now, we are in uh, 1 Samuel. We're journeying through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, Last week, we were in uh, chapters 4 through 6. You have this battle. The Philistines capture the ark, right? And then the ark is in Philistine territory. And we're going to pick up in chapter 7. The ark has made it back to Israel. And it's pretty interesting. It goes to this place called Beth Shemesh. And they're like, oh my gosh, the ark, you know. They actually have a pretty bad experience, and then they actually send it to the town next door uh, without telling them why, and that's actually where we pick up in chapter 7, 1 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Um, just quick thing, you, I don't know, yeah, see where it says like Lord and it's in all caps, you read this in your Bible sometimes. Uh, someone asked me after service yesterday or last Sunday why I said the word Yahweh, right? So one way to say that in Hebrew is Yahweh, but it's translated as Lord up here. So if I say the word Yahweh, I'm referring to the Lord, just so you know. What I want to emphasize here, though, in this text is this last line, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is a really unique, actually, biblical phrase, uh, and it means something like Israel sought God in their mourning. They mourned towards God. God, which is pretty interesting, actually, if you think about it. It seems like getting the ark captured, being defeated in battle, kind of like threw them off, and it kind of made them a bit introspective. And it's in this introspective moment, right, they recognize their sin, they mourn over it, and they sought God as they mourned their sin. Now, Samuel, he's a prophet in Israel. Right, And he kind of picks up on this. He sees the people of Israel have been impacted by their sin. They're mourning over it and they're focusing on God in their mourning. And he says to them, verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord. Serve Him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Astaroth, and they served the Lord, Yahweh, only. Samuel comes in, he notices Israel is mourning after the Lord, and he says this conditional statement, If you're going to do this, then I want you to do something else. Right? If you're mourning your sins, then let's see you respond. Right? He directs their mourning. Specifically, he says, if you are returning the Lord with all of your heart. In Deuteronomy, uh, Moses tells God's people, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. Right? Samuel's echoing back to Moses. Right? Much like Jesus will when you read the New Testament. 
But it seems like in Israel at this time, even though Israel's mourning after God, maybe there's a tendency to say, if I just do these things, I'm good. And we got to get this, right, as 21st century people. It's easy in our brains to have this like checklist of right behaviors that makes us feel like we're good with God. Now, at Wellspring, we often frame this in terms of bounded and centered set. I'm going to do a little drawing of it, and I'm going to do my best so that you can see and they can see, and it's a bit of a mess, but we'll figure it out. All right. So one of the ways we frame this is in terms of bounded set and centered set. All right, bounded set is thinking, if I just do the right things, I'm in. You think the right thoughts, you do the right thoughts, you do the right... Look at that, magical. You'll miss it for a second, but it'll come back. All right. Sorry. <laughs> so you think, right, man, I was at a revival when I was 13. I raised my hand. I got my ticket to heaven, right? I, I'm good. I'm in. I'm awesome. I read my Bible. I attend church. Look, I'm here today. I'm good. The problem with bounded set thinking is it tends to lead to stagnation. You think you're rocking it. So you kind of stop doing other things. Right, Samuel says to the people of Israel, seek God with all of your heart. Right, another way of thinking about the spiritual life is centered set. It's imagining, right, Jesus, like, in the center. And the question isn't as much whether you are in or you're out. The question is, no matter where you are, are you moving towards Jesus? Right, are you moving towards him? Is he the center Sometimes you think you're close, but actually you're moving this way. Or maybe you're moving that way. The question is, are you moving closer? I'll do my best, Vanna White. There we go. In and out, bounded set, centered set. The question is not, are you in or you're out? The question is, no matter where you are, are you moving closer? Bounded versus centered set. Right? And Samuel's asking the people of God, like, are you with all of your heart and mind and strength? Is Jesus at the center? Is Yahweh the Lord at the center? And are you moving closer? Hey, all, you know, I see your mourning. It's great. Right? Step one, get rid of all the other gods that you worship he says to them. You see, there can only be one center. Toss out the other gods. Put Yahweh at the center. Orient your heart towards Him alone. Right? This is why he says in verse 4, direct your heart to the Lord. Serve Him only. It's not just enough to, you know, do the annual religious pilgrimage once a year, do your sacrifice, and then do your own thing the rest of the time. Give all of your heart to Yahweh. Put Him at the center. Don't just mourn your sins. Direct your whole life towards Him. You see, if you walked around ancient Israel and you went into someone's house, you'd likely find a number of local gods there. Baal was one of the most popular gods in Canaanite mythology. He was described as having seven lightning bolts in his hands. 
Right? He was worshipped as the storm god. And if you look at depictions of him in the ancient Near East, he's riding on the clouds. He's the bringer of rain, and so he's worshipped as a fertility god. And since Israel lived in a land that was really dependent on rain, the worship of a fertility god was really, really tempting. You know, and if you wanted to hedge your bets a little bit, a little prayer to Yahweh, a little prayer to Baal, just in case. And the Ashtoreth uh, was sort of like a female version of Baal and was worshipped as the goddess of fertility, love, and war. She's so closely associated with Baal in the ancient Near East that sometimes called her the name of Baal in some of the Ugaritic texts. The point is, right, Samuel is not just asking the people of Israel to toss their figurines in their hall closet. You know, just put them on the side, pack them up so they're not in the center of your room. He's telling them that they need to trust in the Lord, in Yahweh alone, for their crops, for their love, in their wars, right, to put Him at the center no one else. I remember in my 20s, I was, um, was working at a group home, and I, uh, I felt the Holy Spirit kind of nudge me to give away, like, most of my possessions and go live with these homeless youth. And the truth is, that was the easy part for me. It was really easy for me to give away most of my clothes. Like, I had a two pairs of clothes, a backpack. I kept my car. It was really easy for me to live with these homeless kids. It was super easy. Just, I, I didn't, my heart wasn't attached to those things. But then it came to my bank account. And I was like in my 20s. I was in the Peace Corps before that. Like, I was working in a group home. I didn't have a lot of money saved up. Maybe like 1,500 bucks or something. You know, not like a ton, but enough. It was easy to give away some of my clothes and my stuff. I'll tell you what, though. That bank account... I wasn't going to give away one dollar. And it wasn't until I had this moment when God asked me to get rid of this stuff and give it away that I realized I was no different than the Israelites worshiping Yahweh one moment, but then keeping a secret little reserve in the back. Because in the end, I did not trust that if I gave away that 1500 bucks in my bank account, that God would actually come through for me. I thought, I thought that I was trusting in God with my whole heart. I thought I was serving Him only until I was asked to give away some of the money in my bank account and this secret idol became really, really clear. See, the thing is, sometimes we don't know that we have a secret idol in our life until someone like Samuel tells you to get rid of it. Something that maybe you even depend on your livelihood for. And then you realize, oh man, this is a lot harder than I thought. 
Right? Samuel calls the people to be all in, to trust in God, to serve Him alone with their whole heart. Which, if we're just honest, is really easy to say. And it's a whole lot harder to actually do. The really cool thing about this story, though, the people of Israel, they actually do it. They actually go all in. The text says they take these idols to Baal and Ashtoreth, right, and they get rid of them. They say, oh God, okay God, we trust you. Verse 4, it says, they served the Lord only. To serve in Hebrew is the same word as worship. So what it's saying is they worshiped and served Yahweh alone. They took the plunge, which I think is pretty awesome to mark because how often in our lives and how often in biblical history do people actually do it? Most of the time, we hedge our bets a little bit. And if you read the scriptures, you know most of the time, Israel does too. Samuel seems to think that the people are at this cool turning point. So he decides, actually, let's make the most of this. Let's gather all of Israel. So he moves all the people together, right? So they're moving together in this Godward direction, verse 5. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And there said, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. I kind of love this idea that Samuel doesn't just say, okay, now serve the Lord alone in your house, by yourself, you know, on your little solitary radical individualism way. Right? He gathers all of Israel together. Because there's something powerful, right? When we're together. But there's something powerful when you look around at other people saying, I'm all in, and you realize, like, wow, I'm not the only one. Like, if I fall on my face here, at least I'm falling on my face with these other people. There was this cool moment, actually, last week when we were in the second set of worship, and a bunch of people just started coming forward, just totally spontaneously, and just started, like, putting their face on the ground, bowing before Jesus. And it was this moment where you're just like, wow. It almost like gave permission, I think, for the rest of us to be like, all right, maybe I can go all in too and maybe I'll look a little silly, but at least I'm not on my own. I think Samuel knows this. He knows it's encouraging and inspiring when we see other people laying their lives down. He's like, let's gather And you notice the first thing to do when the people gather is for them to turn to God. The truth is, sometimes pastors and leaders in the church, we forget this. It's so easy, I think, you know, and you've probably been in enough churches, you've seen this, where pastors and leaders, they're like, let's go into planning mode. Let's come up with our awesome five-year plan. You know, let's all rock these practices. And that's good and great and wonderful But Samuel knows that talking to God, 
prayer is the first order of business for God's people. And this shapes his leadership. And later, when the prophet Jeremiah thinks about intercession, right, people praying to God for other people in Israel, he thinks of two people, Moses and Samuel. And he knows that while prayer is essential, sometimes it helps for God's people to have some way to respond. Right? Some way to mark their resolve. So Samuel asked Israel to do two things. First involves water, the second one involves food. Now, this verse about water, it says that Samuel drew water and poured it out before the Lord in verse 6. Now, the truth is there's actually a lot of scholarly debate on what this means. I'll give you three ideas that I think all could be true. And I don't know, maybe all of them are or none of them are, but I think they're close. One, um, it seems significant, right? Baal is the god of storms, rain, water. So what is the first thing Samuel does as the people are repenting? He takes water and pours it out and says, we rely on God alone. Not the water that Baal provides, right? In quotes. Two, it's also possible that pouring out of the water was potentially a sign or a symbol of washing away of the people's communal guilt. Uh, three, it's also possible uh, in Lamentations 2.19, it reads, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. So it's possible in this moment that what Samuel's doing is actually enacting what the people are doing internally, right? They're pouring out their hearts before the Lord and he's enacting that with the water. All those are possible. The second thing Samuel does is he has the people fast, right? They don't eat and as their hunger grows, it becomes a physical reminder of the people's longing for God, their need for God. Right? It's an embodied reminder of their need and longing. Now, I'll just be honest for a second because for much of my Christian life, I found fasting to be very unhelpful. It generally just made me cranky and I didn't really like it. Um, other people love it. Um, just want to acknowledge, like, I have not rocked fasting all that well in much of my life. But in the last few years, I've actually found, so like, what I found was if I did like this hardcore no calorie fast thing, it like, it just actually made me a worse human being. But <laughs> if I did a really low calorie fast and just did all of the calories in liquid, it actually was this profound reminder to me that like every time I would go to eat, which every creature needs to do, it would remind me, oh, that's why I'm drinking these calories, because I need God. That Jesus is my true food. Right? As embodied creatures, sometimes shifting the way we eat shifts our spiritual posture before God. And that's what Samuel is trying to get the people to do, right? Gather to pray, pour out the water, and have them fast before God. It's pretty interesting to me, having fasted and prayed, the people say this, we have sinned against the Lord. 
right back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. God says to them, enjoy the awesomeness of this garden. Provision upon provision, right? Eden means delight. Delight yourself in the garden of delight. There's fruits everywhere. Enjoy them. Just, hey guys, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of tov and raw of good and bad. Learn your wisdom from me as we walk in the garden together. Don't take the shortcut. God in Genesis 1 says, this is good. He is the determiner of good. And yet, Adam and Eve, tricked by the serpent, the crafty little serpent, decide, you know what? We could be like God, and they decide to get wisdom on their own terms. They get to decide what wisdom is. They get to be right in their own eyes. They get to determine tov apart from God, good apart from God, and what do they do? They introduce sin into the world. And what you see is there's this cascading set of consequences that happen. Division between Adam and Eve. They blame one another. They cover their nakedness in shame and hide from one another. There's division between God and humans. God calls out to them as the breeze of the afternoon is blowing. And what do they do? In fear, they hide behind the tree. And then there's even internal division within Adam and Eve. They felt naked and unashamed. And what's the first thing that happens? They experience shame. I'm not good enough. Something is wrong with me. Sin leads to divisions between us, between us and God, and within ourselves, and between us and creation. What we see here is Israel is saying, hey, God, we sinned. We did what was right in our own eyes. God, we determined what was good apart from your direction. We saw what was good and said, I'm going to take that shortcutting the path to wisdom, thinking we could do it better than you. And as a result, God, we sow division among our people. God, we sow division between you and I, and we sow division even in ourselves. They see this. We have sinned, and they turn back to God, putting him at the center not determining what is good or tov on their own terms. Right, so Samuel gathers this repentant people. They pray, they fast, they pour out waters, all in the hopes of aligning their heart with God, putting Him at the center. What's interesting is they gather at this place called Mitzpah, which means watchtower, and it happens to be a place where Israel also goes sometimes when they're ready for a battle. And the Philistines look up and they see Israel gathered on the top of this mountain and they think, oh no, Israel's going to attack us. Israel hadn't even thought about it. But the Philistines freak out. The lords of the Philistines, it says, went up against Israel. Israel is having a prayer and worship time. The Philistines think they're gathering for battle. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. 
verse 7. Right? Even though Israel had turned back to God, I think it's really important to note they still experience fear. Do you ever have that moment of like, if only I believed enough, if only my life was righteous enough, I would never experience anxiety or worry or fear. Like, what is wrong with me? Moment of opportunity, that's internal division sown by sin in the world. Take a step back. Israel, even though they've repented, even though they've turned back to God, they still feel some fear. The question isn't whether they're afraid. The question is, what do they do with their fear in that moment? Does fear become the center? Or does the Lord stay at the center of their life and perspective? This is a really key part of the passage. Right, a few weeks ago, we talked about how Israel went into battle with the Philistines. What do they do? They bring the Ark of the Covenant because they think, if only we have the Ark, you know, we will be guaranteed victory. They put God in a box. They trust in their own religious assumptions. And what happens? They lose. They're defeated. It's this humiliation. Instead, here, verse 8, they trust in God. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Right? God's people, they turn to Samuel. They turn to prayer. Right? Likely anchored in the story of the Exodus and the book of Judges, they tell Samuel, cry out to God for us. He hears our prayer. Samuel listens and the text says he offers a whole sacrifice. And what that means, this is sort of a liturgical way of saying they didn't save any. They let the whole lamb just burn up and say, God, it's all yours. We trust in you. Take it all, Lord. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck down as far as below Bethkar. Notice what happens. They call out to God, and what does God do? He thunders. Does that seem to have any significance to you? Yeah, right? Verse 4, what does Israel do? They threw out their Baal, idols. Remember what Baal was worshipped for? The god of storms, of thunder, of rain. He's depicted as holding seven lightning bolts in his hands. Israel throws away their idols. They say, we're going to trust in God alone. And how does God show up? As thunder. Scaring the Philistines who worshipped Baal. And now God is like, no, no, no. I am the Lord. You were right to throw away those little idols. I am the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. You can trust in me. Reminding Israel that they were foolish, right? To trust in these idols rather than the God of Israel. And to help Israel remember this, Samuel actually sets up a stone called an Ebenezer. Verse 12, set up an Ebenezer for it is, for he said, 
Till now, the Lord has helped us. Israel's repented. They turned back to God. They've tossed out the idols. They've taken God out of the box of their own assumptions. They've trusted in Him. They see Him work. And now they have this stone to look back and remember that God is their helper. As the psalmist says in Psalm 33, right? Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Now that's the story of Israel and Samuel in chapter 7. And I want to highlight two things of ways, or two ways that I think this really speaks into kind of like our everyday life. And the first has to do with repentance. Because I think sometimes we forget that there really is evidence of repentance. Too often I think that we think that like repentance is that thing we do once and then we're good. God, I sinned. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me. Now I'm good. But this is actually not really what the Scripture says about repentance. The Scriptures consistently remind us that we can actually easily drift. We can put other things at the center, right? Back to bounded set, centered set. Bounded set, that sort of thinking, I repented when I was 13, I'm good. And that's true on some level. But on a pragmatic and everyday reality, the truth is we can set up all kinds of other centers in life. We can easily drift thinking, oh man, I got everything lined up with Jesus. But in reality, we're just sort of doing our own thing. So apply to us. I think Samuel is saying to us, right? If, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away your foreign gods. Right? We need to put away our gods too. Direct your heart to the Lord. Serve Him only and He will deliver you. Samuel seems to assume that the goal is to seek the Lord with our whole heart. Which the truth is, is really hard to sustain. Who here has felt like day in, day out, decade after decade, every moment of every day, Man, my whole heart has been engaged in seeking Jesus. Most of us are a little more like this. We ride our motivation waves and distractions and all kinds of other things. They put other centers there. See, returning to Jesus with our whole heart isn't just an emotion. It's not just an internal experience. It's actually an internal realignment that has on the ground lived out practical implications. In the text, they throw out their idols. For us, maybe we stop hoarding our money and we give to God's work in the world. We stop retreating into addiction, porn, drugs, food, and we fast. We stop isolating in our pain and shame, and we turn to others for prayer and help. We stop making excuses for why we don't read the Bible, and we begin with one paragraph every day. 
We stop worshiping or riding the roller coaster of worshiping political parties and political leaders, riding their fear and anxiety. We turn off the TV, we stop reading endless articles, and we begin praying for our world and our leaders, turning to Jesus as our King and our Savior, the Lord above all lords. Real repentance always leads to action, even if the action is super small. When I realized, you know, that I was creating this massive idol out of my money and my bank account, you know, I didn't give away all that money. I literally couldn't. I was so attached to it, it was terrifying for me. You know, a lot of you have probably heard this story. Some of you haven't. But I literally remember the first time I did something about that money. I, uh, my buddies and I would go and have dollar pizza at Pleasure Point Pizza in Santa Cruz. And um, I felt like God was telling me, Tony, your first step to stop worshiping this money is to treat your two friends to dollar pizza. <laughs> and I almost didn't do it, you know? I certainly did not enjoy the pizza that day, but I did it, right? That was what it meant for me to embody and live out some element of repentance. It began with $2. And the truth is, like, but for the grace of God in my wife, like, I would be deeply tempted, and I am, but she holds me accountable to being a generous person. Because the truth is, I am still tempted on a regular basis, to trust in money rather than Jesus. I am still afraid that if I do not have money in my bank account, that Jesus will not be there for me. And I still have to repent and remember, Jesus, you have taken me this far. Why do I keep, why does my heart keep wanting to trust in money as my Savior? my bank account as my provider. The thing is, when we repent, it takes shape in our service and our worship. Remember, those are the same word in Hebrew, serve and worship. Samuel says, direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. This is what repentance does, right? It's an internal shift that leads to concrete change. Right? A shift in posture of service and worship as we live out our lives in the world. In the New Testament, right, this image is often connected to a fruit-bearing tree. John the Baptist tells the crowds to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Right? Our repentance shapes our life and our lives bear Jesus-like fruit as our lives are grounded or centered in Him. So I guess as we gather today, I just wonder, what does it look like for you and me to actually put Jesus at the center? You know, for some of us, I think it's like a 180, you know? We're going this way and it's like, all right, I got to turn around. For others of us, it might be a small tweak. When you come in today, what is it for you? 
in the quiet space of your soul, as the Spirit speaks to you, what does he say? What does it look like for you to listen to the Spirit's lead and put Jesus at the center this morning? Is it connected to prayer? Is it connected to reading the scriptures? Is it connected to loving their neighbors? Is it connected to sharing the gospel outside of church walls? Is it the roller coaster of fear you ride or anxiety? What, what is it for you this morning? I think this is a question we should be asking ourselves on a regular basis. What does it look like for me in a very practical and applied way to repent and orient my heart to Jesus and his kingdom? The other point I want to emphasize this morning that I think is really connected textually is sort of this idea of God as our helper. Right in chapter 4, when you go back, Israel trusted in their religious assumptions. They think that if they bring the ark in, it's going to guarantee victory in battle. Here, Israel trusts in God as their helper and sees that God is for them. Right? And they create this memorial in Ebenezer to remember that God is their help. Psalm 121, I love it. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who thunders, right? Not Baal. As I was thinking about this and how it might relate to us, I was reminded of a few Sundays ago, actually. You know, we had the, the group of here uh, folks that decided to become members. Most of them were at our home class a few weeks ago. And during that home class, I got to share. I got to remember how God has been so faithful to this church over the last four and a half years. And then I got to meet with a couple after, and they were sharing about how God has been faithful in their life. And I was just struck by how encouraged, how helpful it was to look back and seize the ways that God has been faithful, the ways that He has remembered and redeemed and rescued us and me. And as I was looking at this text today, I was kind of convicted, right, of the people and Samuel and turning to prayer. And how often in my life, like, I don't do that. How often in my life I go towards my best thoughts rather than God? How often in my life I turn towards fear and anxiety rather than trusting in God? Right? Fear and anxiety are when I start to trust in my own competence rather than God's provision. I was kind of convicted, actually, of... Like just my lack of prayerful intercession. Right? You see the people in the text like they're crying out to God. And how often I don't cry out to God because I don't remember how faithful and central God has been in my whole story. And because I don't look back, I forget that actually God was the one and has been the one who's done all the heavy lifting throughout my life. When I forget that, I rely on my own strength. I don't turn to prayer. I feel more anxious. Sometimes I think for us, it's helpful to remember, to look back, right? 
Samuel creates the Ebenezer Stone as a way for the people of Israel to look back and remember that God was faithful. So every time they see it, they say, oh yeah, yeah, God is our provider. I think this is one of the reasons that if you read the scriptures, they're constantly saying, look back and remember. Look what God has done corporately and individually. And I guess I just wonder for us today, for you, what does it look like to take some time, maybe this week, to look back and see the ways that God has been faithful in your story and in your life? The ways that he has rescued you the ways that he has cared for you, the ways that he has comforted you. And I wonder if sitting in the ways that God has been faithful, we might actually move forward a little bit different in life. Shaped by his goodness, I wonder if we took a little time this week to reflect on, all right, God, so what is the invitation then to me to walk forward faithfully if I remember that you are my helper? You are the one who provides. And as we invite the worship team up, I just want to create a second as they're walking up here, maybe just recall to mind in this space a time or two that God has been faithful. And I get it. Life is hard. Sometimes it feels like, God, where are you? Sometimes we have to, like, choose to create a little space and remember. And what I want you to do, I want you to bring that maybe one or two memories to mind of how God has been faithful to you. And all I want you to do is just say to Jesus, thank you. Let's just take a moment and recognize and honor the centrality of God's help, of Jesus' grace in our life. We're here today because God has done something in us. Whether we're far or close to him today, whether this is our first time in church, or we've been coming in church, you know, for 50 years, we're here today because we have some sense that God is gracious and good we want to know him. I invite you in this moment, just turn back. Thank you, God. And God, we ask that in our brokenness and in our sinfulness, we ask that you would stir our hearts to love you. We would ask you, God, to stir in us, awaken in us, God, a love for you, a wholehearted devotion that we might serve you only. And as we sing this song, we're going to sing about sort of loving and living in Christ alone, where our hope is found, that it's not found in money and riches, it's not found in a resume self. It's not found in Instagram followers. It's not found in work promotions. It's not found in how ripped we get at the gym. It's not found in anything but Jesus who rescues us. 
and loves us. Stand, let's sing together.